Welcome to We Question and Learn. This is Tom Pies. Our guest today is Adam Bratton, and Adam is the executive director of the nonprofit Partnership. He has a 20-year track record of diverse experience in nonprofit management. And Adam, I'm not going to read your resume, but I, I have a list of different organizations that, that you have actively worked at, participated in, uh, Allegheny College, right. um, the Robert H. Jackson Center in Jamestown. Yep. Explain what that is, because some folks hear the name all the time. They see the sign on the road. Right. What was that? What is that? Yeah, the Jackson Center was created to honor Robert H. Jackson, who was a Supreme Court justice and the prosecutor of the Nazis in uh, Nuremberg, so Mm -hmm. kind of the father of international law. And this center was created back back in, I think, 2000, 2001, and and it was... uh, Uh, It's a great resource to uh, remember uh, Jackson's legacy, but also to talk about how that legacy impacts uh, our current day. He, and I I should preface, he was um, from Jamestown. So that's that's why it was created in Jamestown. Um, But a lot of what he did has has had an impact throughout our history since uh, he was alive, including uh, creating this uh, international law. So all the all the international law, uh, war crime tribunals that exist okay. now uh, stem from what he did at Nuremberg. Uh, he had a number of um, important decisions, authored a number of important decisions on the Supreme Court in realms uh, such as uh, presidential power, which is certainly relevant right now, um, yeah. and, and that sort of thing. So it's uh, it, it's it's got something to say about the past, uh, but not only past, what it what it means for us now and in the future. You have a pretty good perspective on the, the nonprofit community. Yeah, I've had uh, quite a background, and, and, and that was intentional. It was my, one of my goals in my career to, to serve a number of nonprofits, a variety of nonprofits, and a variety of roles. So mm. I've been an executive director, a fundraiser, a communicator, a uh, advocate, so it's uh, it's given me a, a great perspective, especially on what I do now. Could you explain to the folks that are just tuning in, or who do not know, what is the nonprofit partnership? Sure, the nonprofit partnership was created by the Erie Community Foundation originally as a program of the foundation, but became its own separate nonprofit in two thousand six seven, and it exists to build the capacity of the nonprofit sector uh, in our region. Uh, so we have about 350, 365 nonprofit members, um, and so we represent most of the active nonprofits in the community, and we serve them in a variety of ways. Uh, really, any way that they need is kind of our mantra. We, we, we try to um, address whatever questions or issues or needs that uh, all our individual nonprofit members have, uh, but we provide a lot of uh, education, a lot of professional development, um, a lot of uh, consulting, so organization-wide or individual consulting with, uh, let's say, CEOs or fundraisers or board chairs. Uh, we provide a lot of kind of help desk services, so nonprofits will bring to us uh, questions or issues or need things, uh, and we find uh, the solution for them. And if we uh, don't know it in-house, we uh, find resources or find people that can help them. So it's really a, uh, we're really just a, a service organization for the nonprofit sector to build up their capacity to be able to do their 
job well and uh, to hopefully be able to uh, accomplish their missions in a, in a more impactful way. It sounds so easy. But yeah. We know that there's much more to that. Where, where are you located now? Things have changed over the years. Sure. We're, we are on the Erie Community Foundation campus. So we're downtown uh, Six and Walnut. And uh, the foundation uh, received a generous gift from Mr. Hagen in honor of his uh, or in memory of his wife, uh, Susie. And so we uh, are in the facility that was renovated uh, in memory of uh, uh, Mrs. Hagen, and uh, that's a, a great location for us. We have uh, meeting rooms, training room, uh, offices. We're connected to the foundation as we uh, both have complementary missions, them being uh, uh, the largest funder of nonprofits in the community and us being uh, the capacity builder. So we work closely with the foundation, and that's important uh, as we uh, address the issues of, of the nonprofit sector. Quick, quick question: What is capacity building? Uh, there's probably some nonprofits that uh, would like to hear this definition as well. Sure. Well, capacity building is just, in, in very basic terms, um, building up an organization and the individuals within, so they can do their uh, do their work better. Uh, and that's really our goal: is to. And from the donor's perspective, this is very important. Right. It's um, if if our nonprofits um, uh, and the people within uh, have more resources, are um, uh, better educated, and have professional development activities, uh, and have the ability to um, uh, uh, stretch their resources and really take advantage and steward their resources, obviously that. Uh, I would think would be important to donors uh, because the donor dollars are going farther uh, if those organizations function uh, in a more healthy manner, and that's really one of our uh, primary goals. Um, your capacity, two staff members, yourselves. We were talking about your bad case of laryngitis subsequently. Right, right. <laughs> you do a lot of teaching. Yeah, so we have we have a small staff, but we do a lot, and we also mm-hmm. again partner with uh, folks in the community, with funders, with the foundation, uh, bring in experts within the community. We have a, uh, a wealth of uh, really um, educated and uh, educated people who have extensive experience in the sector. So they come in and help us teach our nonprofits. Uh, I do a lot of training um, in realms of governance in particular and fundraising. Those uh, two categories seem to be <laughs> Um, the greatest need for our nonprofits. So uh, we uh, host workshops, uh, educational programs, yeah. uh, uh, intensive trainings. Right now, we're in a uh, we have a fundraising course that we're teaching. Uh, I regularly teach a governance course uh, specifically for board members and executive directors. Wow. Thank you, because that was the next question. You don't only work with nonprofits; you work with their boards. Yep. Yep, that's a big focus, and and yeah, I yeah. guess I was probably I've been on the job almost three years, so it was probably yep. one of the bigger surprises that was the desire and the need uh, within the nonprofit sector to um, help their boards uh, understand what their roles are uh, and help their boards do a better job. So uh, I became a certified nonprofit uh, board consultant with oh, BoardSource, okay. yeah. and that's uh, tell people what BoardSource is. This is important. Yeah, BoardSource is uh, the 
go-to clearinghouse for best practice uh, in nonprofit governance. So they have uh, extensive resources on uh, the the uh, best uh, practice and, and and best in roles and responsibilities for board members, because uh, ultimately board members are. Uh, if nothing else, the moral owners of our nonprofits. I and think sometimes boards forget that this is just not you sitting and voting on something. You have a responsibility. Yeah, they have more responsibility than anybody. It's hard. It's hard to. It's hard to convince board members what they're responsible for at times. Well, it, it's often easy since it's volunteer. Um, uh, easy to be on a board. Well, yeah, yeah and yeah. and it's easy to sometimes maybe defer to an executive director or the staff uh, that responsibility, but um, you know the, the matter is that the boards are the ultimate authority for the nonprofit organizations. Um, you know, law doesn't uh, require any other uh, existence, uh, staff or otherwise, uh, except for a board of directors. So. When you start a nonprofit, you have to have a board. Uh, you don't have to have a, a staff or other uh, entities involved. And, and you know, in, in America, it's, it's a historical. It goes back hundreds of years where there's this exchange where nonprofits are set up. They're tax-exempt. Um, they're created to pursue a mission. And in exchange, um, uh, the, the board exists really to represent the public uh, because nonprofits exist for the public good and the the boards are there to represent the public and ensure the organization uh, pursues its mission in a uh, appropriate manner let's backtrack to uh, something you mentioned and that is over 360 board, one for every day of the year in mm-hmm. Erie, Pennsylvania, a board, a board slash nonprofit organization one for every day of the year maybe that's your new uh, that new tagline. Every right. every board gets a day, and right, every group right. gets a day, uh, and we'll we'll backtrack because you do offer a day to everybody. But um, in in some perspective, are there too many nonprofits in Erie, Pennsylvania, Northwest Pennsylvania, your governance area, um, or how did that come to? Is that normal for communities since you've traveled across the country and seen this? Yeah, I let's th- see. What's your perspective on that? There are a lot of nonprofits. Uh, you know, in the United States, not counting churches, there's a million five oh, nonprofits. Oh, across the whole country. Across the whole country. Um, if you count churches, that's probably approaching a million eight, million nine. Hmm. Um, uh, so I don't think we're unusual as, uh, as to the number of nonprofits okay. we have. Uh, what we try to encourage nonprofits to do. Uh, especially the smaller ones, uh, is work together. Uh, if you have uh, a small uh, nonprofit, and most of our members, uh, 60% or so, have budgets under 250000 60%. Right. Uh, then um, uh, sometimes it's hard to really uh, have a, a significant impact. And if uh, you're one of those smaller or medium-sized nonprofits, uh, and you work collaboratively, collaboratively yep, yep. with other nonprofits. Um, you can share resources, you can share experience, uh, staff, uh, and hopefully scale up and have a greater impact on on what you're trying to do. Which is what your organization does, I, I believe. Right. Well, right. one of our one of our goals, one of uh, the elements of our 
uh, vision is to uh, increase the networks within nonprofits, increase that collaboration. Uh, and again, it's always um, not, uh, we don't take that there's too many nonprofits. There's as many as there are to serve the need. Uh, oh. But it's more, uh, I think, important for those nonprofits to uh, really take a look at how can I have a greater impact on uh, achieving my mission? And often that might be uh, to collaborate, uh, merge, uh, uh, ally with um, other nonprofits. Those those sorts of things uh, should be should be explored um, because ultimately, and I, I talk to boards all the time, the uh, the devotion is to the mission. It's not to the organization. So nonprofits were created for a mission. Uh, they don't exist to be an organization or to be a nonprofit, uh, and uh, they should look at the best way they can accomplish that mission. And if that means uh, working with others, uh, if that means you've accomplished the mission and you have to shut down, whatever, mm -hmm. it's uh, ultimately your goal is to achieve a mission and not run an organization. Uh, what a good insight. Uh, <clears throat> while we're talking about that, um, that is – the 365 so-called number of nonprofits uh, fundraising. Right. It seems like um, I used to have an analogy, like a nest of little birds, and they're all cheeping for their share of the pie. First, let's talk about fundraising. Do you offer that kind of training? Yes, we have a intensive fundraising course uh, that we provide. Um, uh, the one thing in the nonprofit sector, there are very few professional fundraisers. Uh, I was a professional fundraiser for a number of years. Um, uh, most of the time in the nonprofit sector, the fundraising uh, job is given to either the executive director um, or some other staff member as part of their job. Uh, that's not their only job. Uh, and so what we find uh, with our fundraising course is a lot of those folks uh, come in who have many other jobs within the organization yeah. uh, and need to learn uh, the tenets of, of fundraising. So that's, that's what we see with our, with our course, and, and it's uh, hopefully a great resource for them. I'm sure it's well participated in, I'm sure. Yeah, we got a great class right now uh, that's going on. Um, there's 15, 16 members uh, within the class, and we offer this um, uh, multiple times every year. Uh, and again, it's not it's not the professional fundraisers. Uh, it tends not to be the professional fundraisers. It tends to be the folks who really need to learn. Uh, and this on the would job. be open to board members as a suggestion, maybe. Oh sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. Anybody, uh, our our members, uh, uh, any anyone on their staff or their boards can can attend any of our sessions, uh, and we we encourage boards to. Um, at least have a background in education. It's not that they're necessarily going to be the ones oh, to go okay, out okay. and fundraise, uh, but hopefully uh, if, if they have an understanding of what fundraising is and how to go about it, they can be partners with the organization because ultimately uh, fundraising requires um, investment by uh, an entire organization, not just one person uh, sitting in a silo trying to um, trying to grab those dollars or be one of those Fun fundraising guys right. <laughs> or right. ladies, yeah, right. <laughs> which is a difficult task in the 21st century for a lot of reasons. Before I get to that, um, fundraising on one end, the people asking for money, there's the need from the nonprofit to serve important community needs. Now, let's what is the capacity 
of our community. Do you, do you know what I mean? The battery yeah. can only carry so many volts. What? Sure. How are we? What, what is your uh, perspective on community capacity? I think there's significant capacity. Um, I think, uh, for whatever reason, uh, nonprofits uh, have not, uh, most nonprofits have not developed um, sophisticated fundraising programs. Uh, and uh, I, I tell them uh, all the time, you have great stories to tell. Uh, spend some time telling those stories. Uh, often, and it's, and it's uh, commendable, often they're just nose to the grindstone trying to achieve their mission serve people who really uh, desperately need those services and the thought of figuring out how to tell their stories to people outside of the organization or outside of their realm uh, falls away and, and, and becomes a, just an extra duty. But uh, I, I fully believe that if people hear the stories, they're going to invest in it. Um, yeah. An example of uh, when I was uh, working at the Achievement Center, Achievement Center hadn't really pursued fundraising in a significant way, didn't raise much money on and, the and annual. a good organization. Great organization. Well run. Yeah. A great facility. And Outreach was wonderful. Training right. they did as well. Yeah. And we, um, they brought me in and, and a consultant in to do a capital campaign. Um, yeah. And in 18 months, I believe, they raised close to a million nine. Uh, after having raised very little to begin with. And, you know, conversations over and over and over with donors was, why don't we know about you? Why don't we know what you're doing? This is exactly what we like to support. And these are individuals in the community who have significant resources to uh, support the organization. So I, I think there's a significant capacity within uh, okay. Erie to uh, support our nonprofit sector. I think the burdens on the nonprofit sector um, uh, to have, uh, uh, to be able to tell their story and have uh, a process in place to do effective fundraising. I think people get a little stressed. You know, in the old days, people would ring your doorbell. The vacuum cleaner salesman to, well, we're really going back to the coffee salesman. You know, we're going way back, way back, way back. But this concept of just wandering around asking for money is sometimes detrimental to your organization. You really should be, as you said, Fundraising is a process. I Having mean, a if, script. If, if nothing story. else, it's it's a process. And um, uh, we teach that all the time. If you follow a process and if you're disciplined about it, um, there's people out there who want to support you. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it can't be kind of a scattershot yeah. uh, when I get to it sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it has to be a disciplined process. And um, I, I see organization after organization and I uh, had this conversation with my staff yesterday that, you know, uh, we've got to figure out how to help these folks do a better job of telling their stories because I go into these organizations and see this incredible work, you know, people serving uh, children and, and folks with um, uh, 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 disabilities or other challenges and nobody knows what they're doing. And uh, it's, it's inspiring and heartbreaking at the same time because people should know what they're doing. I've witnessed several capital campaigns over the years. What's the prerequisite for a capital campaign? Do you folks help with that? Sure. Do you help with the requirements needed? Isn't there, aren't there some rules right now in this community relative to doing a capital campaign? Well, um, sort of. There, yeah. There's, um, uh, years ago, I believe in the 70s, um, uh, the, uh, a number of funders, uh, corporations, 
donors in the community started what is now called the Community Fund Drives Committee. Mm-hmm. And the Fund Drives Committee, which we staff, um, uh, meets uh, a couple times a year to um, engage with people who are organizations who are interested in pursuing capital campaigns. And it's really to help uh, those organizations uh, pursue those campaigns in a um, well-thought-out, appropriate manner that the campaigns are scheduled out enough so they're not a uh, they're not competing uh, with each other for uh, some some of those limited resources, uh, and yeah, so I think it's somewhat unique to Erie that uh, funders again uh, in the '70s created this this. Yeah. There were mechanism. many arguments over the practicality of that. I mean, I need money. I'm going to have a capital campaign. Right. On the other hand, you can tap the community to the point where, once again, it's the little chirping bird theory. You have too many distractions. Well, from the and cause it's, at hand, yeah, so I, I, I think it's more that uh, capital campaigns and sig- serious fundraising campaigns, whether they're capital campaigns, endowment, or just creating a fundraising uh, program from ground up, uh, is is a, a, a serious process and one that requires a level of uh, experience, expertise, uh, and, and yeah, so you can't wake up one day and say. I need, need 500000 so I'm going to create a nice brochure and some uh, uh, and reach out to folks because that's not, um, that's not how the process works. And if you don't have your story written right. and you haven't practiced telling it. Right. So doing that requires, again, a lot of uh, preparation by, by, by uh, nonprofits. Yeah. You know, a successful capital campaign uh, might take three years before you're really into it, um, just because of the preparation that you need uh, uh, to go through in, or, in order to be able to uh, mm-hmm. tell your story and have the infrastructure in, in, in your organization to be successful. Before we run out of time, there's um, two very neat things that you folks get involved with. Let's talk about Erie Gives Day for a second, if that's okay. Sure. Yep. Yeah, Erie Gives is a... Um, uh, is again, I think, somewhat unique to Erie in its success. There's a lot of cities that run Giving Days. Uh, Erie uh, Gives Day, which was started by the Community Foundation a number of years ago, uh, has seen incredible success. It's uh, last year it raised 4.4 million. Uh, <laughs> Isn't that from, amazing in a community this size? Right, and yeah. and everybody who I talk to who's outside of this community thinks it's amazing. Uh, yeah. I remember I was down in New Orleans and and they had a giving day and they're so proud. New Orleans. New Orleans. So so proud that they had raised like three and a half, four million dollars. With all the stress that's been down there. Well, and I'm sitting in the audience. I'm like a a, a city the size of New Orleans compared to Erie and 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 we're raising more money than they are. And and um, it's a testament to the uh, foundation, community foundation, for yes. launching this thing, yes. and nonprofits have really embraced it. So I, I participated in Erie Gives Day as a fundraiser before I came on yep. mm-hmm. to the partnership, and I've just seen um, the growth in investment by the nonprofits, and, and this is a significant uh, element of their fundraising practice now. So on, a, on an annual basis, people really look to Erie Gives uh, as part of their uh, fundraising infrastructure, and uh, it's uh, we've got some great ideas coming up uh, for Erie Gives uh, in 2019 that we'll be discussing in the near future. And like April uh, or something? It's in August. Oh, yep. forgive me, I, I'm, I'm jumping the gun. I don't want to rush you. No, no, yeah, yeah, no. It's and it's August, um, right, yeah. Yep, uh, I think this year will be a great year. 
And then the other huge event that uh, I think uh, the Nonprofit Partnership and the Erie Community Foundation as well should be proud of is Nonprofit Partnership Day. Right. Am I got the title right this year? Nonprofit Day. Nonprofit Day. Yeah, so it's a— Well, I gave you an extra plug. There you go. <laughs> yeah. It's a day-long conference uh, that we host down on uh, at the Bayfront Convention Center in October, uh, and October. it provides uh, our sector ac- access in a very inexpensive way. Uh, way to experts in the field, uh, to uh, networks with each other, uh, to access to um, exhibitors and, and uh, the uh, uh, private industry uh, who can help them achieve their mission. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a great speakers day. speakers of um, we have, great import. Yep, mm-hmm. we have great keynote speakers who come in, other speakers who come in uh, from around the country mm-hmm. talking about governance and fundraising and communications and leadership. And uh, it's uh, this year's going to be a great year. We have some uh, really two uh, top-notch keynote speakers coming in, um, Jay Wilkinson uh, and uh, Lynn Wester. Uh, Jay is um, uh, uh, runs a, uh, a corporation that helps nonprofits uh, with uh, website uh, creation, communications, wow. social media, yeah. uh, and Lynn is a top-notch uh, fundraising speaker and consultant. Very funny. Uh, so we're looking forward to having Take them. the edge off a little, huh? Right. We're getting right. towards the end of the year. We're looking at our budgets going, uh-oh. <laughs> right. And it's, uh, again, it's a, it's a uh, a lot of nonprofits don't have uh, the resources to invest in professional development for their staff uh, to travel uh, to D.C. or uh, Chicago or L.A. for oh. uh, conferences and that sort of thing. So we're bringing that here to Erie. How many uh, people do you get to on that event? Uh, last year we had, uh, in, in total, we had about 400 wow. attendees. Yeah. Uh, and we're, we're thinking this year is going to be that's a Much big event that. considering it's sort of a laser event to the nonprofit world, but yep. that brings a lot of folks in. It brings folks in. There's a lot of folks in Erie that take advantage, but we're seeing a lot of folks regionally now uh, coming from you know, oh. Buffalo and Pittsburgh okay. and Cleveland who are, um, I think people are seeing and recognizing really the value of uh, uh, and quality of the speakers and the, and the program on that day. So we're hoping this year's bigger and better for nonprofits, for board members, or just folks who may have uh, developed a question in their mind listening to you, Adam, how can they find you, and uh, what's the best way? And best way is to go to our website, yourmpp.org. So why you? It's a new thing, right? Huh? Yep. Why are you are mpp.org, and um, they can. Uh, get all our contact information, but better yet, they can look at all the programs and events that we have and things coming up. We have an extensive resource library, which is all best practice information that we have vetted uh, on a variety of topics, heavy on fundraising and governance and communications, but a variety of topics uh, exist there. Uh, And a job board that's very popular uh, for no, uh, jobs within the nonprofit sector. So there's a lot of resources. People can sign up for our newsletters and that sort of thing uh, and uh, just get a lot of access to the sector and, and uh, best practice resources for the sector. Adam Braden, Executive Director of the Nonprofit Partnership. Hardy, thanks for taking uh, time to come and record this interview. We appreciate you being here. Certainly appreciate your insight. 
Well, uh, I <laughs> thank you, Tom. It's always great to come chat with you, and you were one of the founding members of the nonprofit partnership. Well, I, so not we that it was a little earlier than when I got there. I think by about three or four years. Well, you it solidified <laughs> under that. You were there I, when uh, we were youngsters. But so. uh, that that's not the important thing. The important thing is that uh, you folks are here in the community, Adam. You're here in the community. The foundation supports you. The community foundation supports you. And I can unequivocally say, of all the nonprofits that I talk to, I get nothing but positive comments about the services that that you provide for our nonprofit community. And I think our donors and board members appreciate you as well because you keep things on track. Well, we try, and, yeah. and uh, I appreciate that. I've got a yeah. great great team and a, yeah. and a great relationship with the foundation. We couldn't do it without them. And yeah. um, so... We're in a process of planning for our future, so new things to come. Thank you for being here. Thank, Thank you, you, Tom. On NPR News, it's all about the story. People can surprise you anytime. The people behind movies, books, and music. Music is like a Rorschach test, you know, and people hear what they want to hear. I'm Arun Roth, the new host of All Things Considered from NPR News, now coming to you every weekend from NPR West in Southern California. Sunday afternoon at 5 on WQLN Radio. Hi, this is Jeff Hanley, host of Jazz Happening Now. Each week we listen to some of the latest jazz recordings, and I think you'll be thrilled by what today's jazz musicians are doing and saying. The recording industry has changed, but the music is as alive and as vibrant as ever. The future of jazz is happening right now, if you just listen. And please do. Sunday night at 6 on WQLN Radio. Powerful stories define who we are as human beings and connect us to each other. Our imagination is bigger than our identity. It was incredible. I used the term miracle. That was the driving force behind just to keep going. I'm Guy Raz. Join me each week for stories that will change your view of the world on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Sunday morning at 10 on WQLN Radio's Sunday Brunch. Welcome to We Question and Learn. This is Tom Pies. This program is underwritten by Strategy Solutions, a business development firm that provides strategic planning, market research, and project management services to private corporations, faith, and community-based nonprofits and communities on the web at getstrategy.com. Ashley Sanger, welcome to the studios. We're glad you're here. Yes, thank you. Thank you you very much. Um, We decided to have you come, and we're very pleased that you did come uh, to the studios because... um, this is, this is a little different. Your company is called Language Collaborations, LLC, so we can disclaim that, let everybody know that you've been doing this, not for a long time, yeah. but certainly for a great need. And I think what really struck me was that 
you solve a, a specific problem for this community. I'm going to let yes. you identify what that is. Yes, so I solve the problem in the community that we have a very large population of refugees and immigrants in the community yeah. that their first language is not English. So 18% um, of Erie's population are refugees. What provoked you to start working in this arena? Well, I my background is English as a second language. I've taught English as a second language uh, for eight years right now. I started in public schools. My background's actually um, elementary education. And then I, um, I earned my certificate in English as a second language, and I worked up through high schools. And then I decided that I wanted to start working with adults. So you've been doing this for a while. Yes, I've been teaching English as a second language for eight years. And um, okay, so- not I, a new project. No, absolutely. Okay. Not so. I do have a lot of experience, mm -hmm. um, and I really started working with adults. I worked for um, uh, the uh, ELS program um, on uh, Point Park and Point Park University. Okay. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. So um, there was a program for Point Park University students, um, and what they did was we worked with international students to get them prepared to actually go into the universities. And then once I moved up to Erie, um, I started working again in university. Okay. So help me out. I'm, this is fascinating because first of all, you're dealing with a group of people, probably mm -hmm. very intelligent college level students. Yes. They do not speak English. Yes. How did they get here? Um, so they, uh, most of my students were from, from Saudi Arabia. And really? there was a scholarship program between Saudi Arabia and the United States. Yeah. And so what Saudi Arabia did was they identified certain high-need areas. And they had students that they felt were qualified to fill that need. Mm -hmm. And they would send them to the United States to, uh, to get an education. So most of them... Um, that I would get were, were pretty low-level speaking students. Um, mm -hmm. They were between the ages of 18, the whole way up to probably about 45. Um, and so some they're of they're cognizant enough of the English language to be able to fly, get a ticket, come to the airport maybe? Yes, uh, some of them would come here and the only thing that they knew was yeah. hello and yes really? or no. How do yes. you get around? Um, I don't know. They <laughs> yeah. had a difficult time. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah. they were very yeah. nervous. And of course, they had a lot of stories about how scared they were now, getting off the plane. Now, do you speak another language just out of curiosity? Uh, so no. So actually, that so is the you are the okay. Here's the challenge question. now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I studied Spanish for eight years, okay. but I have rarely used my Spanish skills right. at all because most of the population I work with are Arabic speakers, and that's actually still true today. And their text and their script is different. Yes. It's not like you can just hand them a note or translate on a... Do you translate no. on a device by any chance? No. So best practice for English as a second language is to not translate at all. So it really would be um, unfair, especially in my... Um, what I'm doing right now and actually in the past is that I may have had one or two other students, maybe a few more, that they did not speak Arabic. So I'd actually be spending more time translating in Arabic, Chinese, um, German, whatever the language How do you was. Do that? I'm subjectively, I'm sorry. Yes, it's fascinating. So, yeah, so in the in the classroom it's a lot of pictures. Okay. Um, it's a lot of me acting out things. Very, very simple language. Yeah. It's really interesting to watch because um, they I have had true beginners that really do not know anything past hello. Some of them don't know how to say what their name is. Um, so it's really just re and repetition. And students now. 
and their students, so they would come to the United States and they were only in the English as a second language courses. Okay. So they were not going to the professors and their major courses yet. Um, so the way that it's structured is that they would come to the United States and then we would uh, determine doing different testing what levels that they were in. So beginning, intermediate, or advanced. I put that in reverse. What would happen if you went to Saudi Arabia? Have you thought about that? If I've ever gone to Saudi Arabia, I, I, they would probably go through the same, I would assume, same, goes process, yeah. in same process if you were a student, because mm -hmm. that's, I actually studied abroad in Mexico. Okay. And so that was actually the process that I went through. And, and you knew no Spanish. Yes. Yeah, so, so this was when I was in college right. and I studied abroad there and went to a university in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And that was the process that I went through. So you through. have some experience from the other side. I do. <laughs> absolutely. And I think that that is, that helps me a lot to understand language learning. Even though I don't know Arabic, I know how someone learns a language. So how, does this, how many students did you have? I've, oh my goodness, hundreds of students. Hundreds, I've not had, just 10, 20. Oh my goodness, I've had hundreds of students. And I've seen students that have come to the United States that knew absolutely nothing, hello, yes and no, and then I've seen them actually the entire way through their university career and have seen them graduate. How do they graduate. even know what classroom to get into? Um, that is a lot of pictures the also. Pictures, <laughs> that, that, that was a, there's a couple different departments in the universities that I've worked at. And so some of them deal with getting them to know which classroom that they're in, getting them situated with their visas. And then uh, after all that's uh, taken care of, then they would come to me and then I'm actually the one that's teaching them. So I don't, okay. I never dealt with visas or anything okay, legal so you're like the, that. You're, you're the one that does the teaching work, yes. not the expediting. No, so yeah. no, I'm the one that's uh, actually giving them. That has to be a relief them. to some degree, but now <laughs> yes. we're back in the classroom. You have how many students in a classroom? Um, well, in the university, I would say at most, at one point I had 25 which to a typical a typical classroom is so a lot but if you have 25 students in your class that do not know English and they're all speak different languages that oh, is a I'm sorry you have to stop me I <laughs> thought there'd be all Spanish all folks from Saudi Arabia maybe Germany and you're saying mm -hmm. each one of those students could be could potentially speak a different language. No, I, I, this is like landing on Mars. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and for me, I I actually would prefer that the class is more diverse. So I, really? yes, I would prefer that the class did not just have one one language. You know, I would prefer that they all didn't just only speak Arabic or only speak Spanish because then it gives the class such a better feel because then our real language to communicate is English. They actually... cannot say a word unless, well they can, but mm -hmm. it would do them no good to speak other than English and or speak an English word. Exactly, right. exactly. They are not going to be able to communicate with their partner in class I, if we do I'm still work. trying to imagine this. Yes. Uh, okay, so <laughs> your typical first class day, what's that like? Um, so the very first day of class is, well, is, it's difficult in the university because we have to have a syllabus. And oh. so trying to communicate a syllabus to somebody that doesn't know English is very, <laughs> very difficult. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, you have to go over it the first day of class. They have to understand the, you know, plagiarism. That was a big issue. So understanding plagiarism, how do you explain to somebody doesn't that doesn't know English, English yeah. that you cannot copy from the person beside you? So I think okay, that... Okay, you used the word plagiarism, but yeah. Yes. No, no, no crib notes, no cheating, no, no. looking over your shoulder. That's no, what you really mean. No, exactly. And, and sometimes okay. that is a cultural 
issue because really? they love to help each other. Um, so the students that I've had, they don't want the other person to fall behind. So they don't realize that that actually isn't what you should be doing. So in their country, it's fine to help another person. Um, I actually have had students from a particular country. Maybe there's a fine. lesson in life here. Maybe yes. that's a good thing. Has this helped you or not helped? Um, I think that it's very eye-opening because to me we're so used to that you are not allowed to plagiarize from or take content from someone else and use it as their own yeah. um, but I've actually worked with students from a country that they thought why would I make my own content this person already did it in a professional way so they would actually copy word from word word to word off each other's paper off each other's paper or they would go online and just copy and paste entire paragraphs not from someone else copyright law or the no, way we the, deal with things no yeah. not at all yeah. and they found they didn't think that it was a problem at all because they they said this is the professional they know what they're talking about i don't know what i'm talking about yeah. so here's the information from I'm them i'm still there so you're you're in the class is the first day mm -hmm. maybe a half dozen languages mm -hmm. spoken in the audience mm -hmm. and they can't even talk to each other some of them now cannot talk to each other at all no and you know sometimes that that's that's a, that's okay a benefit, yeah. that's actually a benefit sometimes <laughs> um, because then they really have to pull that language from somewhere so the very first day you're um, speaking English while you're doing this. Yes, I'm only speaking English the entire so time. So they're there, you're the teacher. Exactly. And your first words would be, yes. good morning. Hello, my name is <laughs> really? Mrs. Sanger. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so that is me acting that out the entire time. Really? And so the very first day, if they're a true beginner, yeah. we're going to go through what everyone's name is, how to how to say hello, my name is. And then you do the round robin like we used to do in grades. Exactly. Stuff, right? Exactly, because um, even my students now, nobody has ever taught them to say hello my name is so really? yes and that's that's an issue that even the true basics they do not know at all um, now that's not true for everyone because sometimes I would have students that that were very advanced that are able to write papers in English but just need a little tweaking with their vocabulary but um, the ones that are true beginners nobody has ever taught them to so going down to the that. cafeteria the coffee shop is a, another unique experience for yes folks, yes so so every part of their life is going to be turned upside down because now they're going to have to communicate that they want coffee so they might just mm -hmm. end up pointing to the coffee uh -huh. and um, or if they have a friend that might speak a little bit better maybe the person can say coffee for them but there are a lot of them that that they're unable to even communicate uh, you mentioned like you had a syllabus which you have to have prepared for these classes yes yeah. we did have to have a syllabus in the university no matter what the course was you did have to have a syllabus right. because you have to let them you have to give them the actual um, guidelines for being a university student so you you cannot wow. withhold that information okay so uh, <laughs> uh, the university re reviews your syllabus how do you write that uh, I'm sure there's uh, places you've learned how to do this right well I think just from from experience mm -hmm. is that I know now how to run a classroom when I first started teaching English as a second language, I was working with a kindergartner. So at that oh. point, oh. I didn't have to write a syllabus. Mm. But um, I probably started in the university level after I taught for about four years. In, uh, and so then yeah. I know what to expect, what are proper objectives, um, what what can actually be achieved in this time what period. What university hired you to do this? Um, so I worked recently at Gannon Gannon University. university. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. So I taught at Gannon University um, in their English as a Second Language Department. 
And they have quite a few. I know they have quite a few foreign students. Yes. Um, so some of them will test into the English as Second Language classes, uh, but just because they're international students, they may actually test out of that. So they might just oh, go straight okay. into the classroom. Right. But there are mm -hmm. students then subsequent that you taught. Yes. Oh, mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of students. A, a large number. Uh, yes. Oh, so they decided that Gannon University, mm -hmm. and we're just using that as a model, mm -hmm. was a place for them to come in Erie, Pennsylvania? Yes. So wow. a lot of them prefer, or I shouldn't say prefer, but a lot of them um, were given the choice of Erie, Pennsylvania, and they like it because the cost of living is so low. Yeah. Because they, um, a lot of students, um, especially from Saudi Arabia, they were given kind of like a stipend. And so here's the amount of money that you can use during this the time The government period. gave them this money? Yes, the Saudi government said this is mm -hmm. the amount of money that we're going to give you every month, and wherever you choose to study, you know, that's, that's So whatever uh, system they have... Mm -hmm. uh, where they run the gauntlet, so to speak, to be able to come to the United States mm -hmm. and do this. Mm -hmm. There's a process there. Yes, absolutely. They had to go through um, a, a process because they have to be, uh, they have to show that they are financially able to sustain mm -hmm. life in the United States. So that's one of the uh, the situations. Then you have to take a language test. I'm, I'm still sitting there in your first class. Yes. <laughs> Trying to understand. I know. How, I a lot of people how, are How long do you have uh, to be able to have them communicate? Is it a month? Is it six months? Is uh, it? Um, well, it depends. Especially yeah. university level, it's a lot more structured because it would go by semesters. Okay, so it's a semester. So it's a semester. Yeah. Um, and then eventually when I started working at Gannon, they actually made it, um, I believe it was nine weeks no i'm, I'm yeah. not recalling no I, numbers yeah yes. but it's not like a couple of months it's a it's yes. a full semester yes it's typically a full yeah. semester would be about 18 weeks um and then mm. they cut it down a little bit so then you had a lot more specific things that you needed to cover in maybe nine weeks time period but they all have to be goals that are achievable, achievable. so and that's really what i try to to have realistic expectations for everyone if the person does not know how to write a paper in English, and some of them have never written a paper in their own language, it's going to take a, a pretty significant amount of time. I remember way back in the 60s and 70s, the federal government would have language books, and you would literally have these. It was conversational, but in a book, mm -hmm. and that was uh, allegedly the best way to go because the State Department, United Nations, all wanted, and they were learning this on a government book. It was... Mm -hmm. like a telephone book. Mm -hmm. Now we get to the 21st century and you see this company advertising, we can s teach you how to speak a language within mm -hmm. weeks. Is that similar to what you do? or? Well, I guess that uh, it depends what the company is promising. Okay, yeah. yeah. But so, they also use visual components. Oh, very visual. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, I can... I. Um, even the students that I have now, mm -hmm. um, some of them came to me and I've probably... Uh, for I've had them for five to six weeks, yeah. um, and some of them did not know how to say hello. My name is, um, and I've taken them that they are able to communicate in that way. Um, we've done a lot of safety, so the students that I'm working with now are actually employed in the Erie area. And when you say safety, what? So we teach a lot about, or I am specifically teaching those that are employed in Erie about safety a lot because that's the biggest issue that's facing. Okay, how to move about, communicate where to go, where not to go. Yes, well, even something as simple as a fire extinguisher. 9-11, things like that. Well, actually, even more simple than that, things that they see around their workplace. Physical things. 
physical things around their workplaces that I really had to start from there is vocabulary. How to get so, out of the building. Yes, what an emergency exit is, yeah. um, what the fire extinguisher. I, I, all of my students, none of them knew the name even for, that, yeah. for a fire extinguisher. What to do if you're ill. Exactly, or even uh, you know a first aid kit. So wow. like, none of them were able to ask for any of those things. Um, they knew so what they were. They knew what they were, but if there was an emergency, they could not say, can you get me the fire extinguisher? Right. Um, oh, wow. I did not. I had a student um, that he did not know what the, the fire alarm was. He didn't know that you had to pull it down and that it would set off. So, they don't, so the, the environment where they're from is actually different. Though. Yes. So everything about where they're at right now. So the environment that I'm in now is mm. teaching a little bit different than the university level. Mm. University level, I was concerned with their academic performance. So mm. I'm making sure they're speaking in complete sentences. Right. So now we're, uh, we're uh, into the real world where you're outside academia. Yes. You actually teach... Um, individuals how to survive in the business world yes so you've mm -hmm. gone from the university setting which is mm -hmm. somewhat controlled yes it's classrooms and hallways and mm -hmm. buildings in a campus mm -hmm. now you're in the real world so Ex to speak what type what type of work do you do now? So right now, I'm a lot more focused that it is strictly about the business that they are employed right. in. Right, manufacturing? Yes. To, right now, yeah. I'm working um, in a manufacturing business. Environment, yeah. in, mm -hmm. Environment, yes. Mm -hmm. And so right now, I am not concerned with whether they can write a paper or not. Right. I, I don't <laughs> care if they can write an MLA, APA. That doesn't matter. So these people are here to work. They are here to work. So this is a totally different population than I was working with in the past. Mm -hmm. So a totally different situation because my students at the university level had a visa that they were not allowed to work. They were only allowed right, to be a, only student. be a student. And now I have immigrants, refugees, that they are here, that they are going to eventually become citizens. Um, they're not going back to their country uh, for whatever reason that so is. The government knows this. The mm -hmm. government sponsors, not sponsors. This. Yes, they have a green card. They have a green card. Yes, absolutely. They're they all run the gauntlet to, to get into the United States, absolutely. whatever requirement that is. I'm absolutely. not sure, but yes. they are here legally. Absolutely, yes. And they're here to work. Absolutely. They are only here to work. Uh -huh. And so what I'm doing is actually providing them with the English courses that they wouldn't have had otherwise because my students now the feedback from them was that they used to be able to go to english classes yeah. at nonprofits in erie yeah. but because they started working now they can't go um, okay. so yes and i know there are several nonprofits that yes. work diligently with non-english speaking folks yes to help uh -huh. them adapt to their environment exactly get an education go to work take care of their children mm -hmm. and i'm imagining these mm -hmm. folks have families oh absolutely some of yeah. them have four children some of them might really? have five children they have pretty large families and they're they came over here and they, so they are, don't even have driver's licenses um, actually several of them do have driver's several licenses do, but it's yes. not, okay I have one I can drive to work yes well Sometimes. Um, they they are able to drive to work and if they're not then a friend will pick them up okay. so they are able to get to yeah. work however that is some of them live close to the manufacturing company and so, so that's fine some of them may walk <laughs> but I think that their first order business is probably to get their their driver's license because okay. in Erie Erie probably isn't the best place yeah. to not have a driver's yeah. license or it's going to be a little bit more difficult for them anywhere. and then they're also going to have to deal with the language of how to get on the bus and how to know where to go so it's going to be a lot easier for them to probably get their so driver's things license that you and i take for granted like cashing our paycheck yes uh, going to the bank and speaking with a teller this yes. is all a different experience absolutely and so they the students i had would not be able to speak to a teller in a, in a 
effective way at all. So, but they're uh, are they thrilled to be here? Let's absolutely. Ask the so they're thrilled to be absolutely. Here. So the students that I have all are from a war-torn country that okay, they stressed environment absolutely yeah, we, know. we we watched all of it exactly so that they the first day i was there yeah. i was i asked them what country they were all from and so most of my students are from syria and so really? mm -hmm. okay okay yes. thank you for that yes okay. so most of them are from syria and they said you know in the most broken english way our leader is very bad we had to come yeah, here they don't get they don't have the benefits we have. exactly they said you know i'd bring my children here because our leader is very bad and and all of that so that's how they can going on me. all over the united states are these classes available are these what you do mm -hmm. is it ubiquitous is um it? i have found different models so when i was starting this i really i came up with the idea myself i didn't see it anywhere else so i actually really? started it started in my mind i didn't copy from what any you, other you company had to was design doing. a program there's not a general program in this country for immigrants no there um no not that i really? have come across so my program huh. that i design is completely made by myself with yeah. um, with input from manufacturing. So you did this from scratch. So there's I really a, and did. I was imagining that other universities or manufacturers or the government mm -hmm. had programs like this. Um, they may have some programs, but I really wanted to make mine something that could eventually be proprietary that is really right. intellectual property and, of my own. And right, and you're solving a problem for the Erie community. Exactly. So it's really geared towards what does the Erie community need? What do businesses need? Because the business is my actual customer. Yes. Yeah, sure, of course. So yeah. what do they need to make sure that these employees are retained and then eventually hopefully promoted in the future as long as I can, if I can eliminate the language barrier and that's the only issue that's standing between them and a promotion in yeah. the company. And we know there's like government caps on the number of folks that can come to the United States mm -hmm. and the reasons why. They run the gauntlet to get here. Absolutely. It's not easy to be here if you've mm -hmm. watched the news lately. Mm -hmm. There's a limited number of immigrants. Yes. Um, they do get here and then your program helps them. Yes, so my program is specifically geared towards helping them only in the workplace. So I'm not teaching them how to ride the bus. Or how to go to the supermarket. No. Which I'm is what you did before. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So I've kind of changed, you know, what... The scope of the program. Yes. And that's the way to make an effective program, too. Yeah. So it's not general English right. at all. Uh, instantly, my mind explodes. This could be franchise. This could be carrying. So you Absolutely. actually have taken some steps. You've talk to some economic development groups yes. to help you out? Absolutely. So I have been all over Erie County. <laughs> um, so, and, and I really started from scratch because I'm not from the Erie area. I really didn't know how to go about starting a business at all. I've always sure. been a teacher. Um, mm -hmm. And so the business aspect of it was very new to me. And I just knew I needed to hit the ground running and I needed yeah. to figure out how to, how to run this. So I have been involved in the Idea Fund program. Okay, so yeah. Right. I was a finalist in the Idea Fund. Um, I'm actually going back to repitch my business for them in Great. the near future. And you've so. been to the SBDC, you mentioned. I've been to the SBDC. I was actually a part of the first class. Which is that game? Is it, which so is you had Gannon. one connection. Exactly, yeah. exactly, which is a great first step for anyone that's starting a business is yeah, the SBDC. They do a great job. Because they, yep, they, and I, their program is actually called the first step. Um, okay, yeah. And so they tell you everything that you need to know about the basics of running a business. Um, I was also involved in the first class of co-starters. So co-starters is a program um, for small businesses 
um, it, and it's really kind of the beginning stages. Some of the some of the people in my class were in the true beginning that they had started their business the week before we started class, and some of them yeah, had I been in a little bit I was going to say, a lot of the entrepreneurs, they come up with a great idea. They run the gauntlet through the SBDC mm -hmm. and the Erie Technology Incubator if mm -hmm. they get to that point, or mm -hmm. maybe Penn State. Mm -hmm. But you already had this uh, uh, yes, program, mm -hmm. and you've already worked in a university setting. Mm -hmm. You're now creating an economic value exactly. to a company mm -hmm, exactly. to put these folks to work. I think for me it's been difficult because I am the only person in Erie that's doing exactly You're the that. Only one. Yeah. So I really couldn't base it off of is someone else successful? And as from what you tell me, this is not ubiquitous. This is not all over the country. What you're doing is new. Yes, yeah, somewhat. I mean, I've been able to find other programs around, but it's it's definitely not a flooded market. Um, yeah. I even looked at Pittsburgh. I don't believe that there's anyone in Pittsburgh. Yeah, look at all the universities and uh, companies and the yes. large manufacturers that are there. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, there may be really small, you know, programs like myself, perhaps in Pittsburgh, but, you know, if you search it, it's not, you know, it's not a huge, huge flooded market yeah. of, of people that are trying to go well, into business. it's difficult to get into because you have to have these language skills. Exactly. And, and English as a second language, it's actually a, um, somewhat difficult to find those who who are certified to teach English as a second language. So um, that's probably why it's not such yeah, a Yeah, students market. aren't waking up and uh, I'm going to do teach language as, as my major. Exactly. So I think that um, I know when I was in school, it was it was definitely improperly placed into different courses, yeah. English as a second language. And maybe the pro uh, well, you know, it seems to me that problem has been here since it's been here for a long time, but Since for some people reason, have come to the United States. Exactly, yeah. and for some reason, it hasn't caught on. There isn't there. There is definitely not an abundance of English as a second language teachers at all. So I don't I don't know why that is, or you know, maybe it is intimidating to somebody to go into a room well, with you all know, these people uh, that don't know English. <laughs> I apologize for interrupting you, but now corporate America is realizing that mm. these are viable workers. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, we're not going to get into the philosophical philosophical aspects of mm -hmm. that, but mm -hmm. it's better to have everyone working, or most everyone working, mm -hmm. than folks just doling off yes. society or the government. Exactly. To, to have these folks um, escape a horrible environment mm -hmm. and come to work in America. That's what we're mm -hmm. all about. That's the Statue of Liberty. You're helping Exa out. <laughs> exactly. So if I can eliminate yeah. the language barrier for them, then they it's up to them to continue on. Yeah, but and I that would be good them. whether it would be for business or just their own social good. They might exactly. turn out to be artists, writers. Exactly. And that mm -hmm. was part of... Um, when I talk about my business, that it affects it affects the business obviously because mm -hmm. they're they're actually the customer, and then they're going to see an improvement in safety and the quality sure. of their employees. And of course, it affects the employees because now yeah. they're able to communicate with their coworkers, their superiors. Then they can go home, and if they have children in the school system, they're getting English as second language. It affects language. us all that they're able to do this exactly, yeah. and it affects the community too. Right. So yeah. it yeah. you know the the more that they're able to communicate and do all that is for the the good of Erie. Ashley, you're, you're outstanding at what you do. Uh, you. Your project is wonderful. You have a good deal of experience at it, obviously, yes. from your resume. Yes. I hope your company does really well. Thank but you. I think we've learned something today that we did not know about. And you're uh, honestly, I could say one of a kind. Congratulations. <laughs> I hope so this much. explodes for you in some way. Thank and thank you for letting the audience know what problem you're solving for mm -hmm. our community. Thank you yes. very much for being yes. here. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>